This is KMTT, and this is Ezra Beck, broadcasting from Gush Etzion. Today is Thursday, Yud Aleph Shvat, and we're having a storm. If you listen very carefully during the shiur, I think you'll be able to hear the wind howling in the background. Normally we do this in a room that's relatively, relatively sound, uh, soundproofed, but there's quite a storm building up. Baruch Hashem will be getting some rain, which is a good thing. Uh, but it's, there'll be some little bit of interference in the shear. I figure since it's Ruchot Shal Eretz Yisrael, I could try to take it out using the software, which I don't understand. But think of it as being Ruch to Eretz Yisrael. Ruch to Eretz Yisrael is a good thing. It won't interfere with the shear too much. Today's shear in Pashat HaShavua will be given by Harav Yitzhak Blau who is a Ram in Yeshivat HaMiftar in Efrat, a neighboring community to Gush Etzion. Uh, the Shir in Pashat HaShavua for Pashat B'Shalach. The Shir is 29 and a half minutes long, and after the Shir I will be back for the Halacha Yomit. When we think about Am Yisrael complaining in the Midbar, we tend to think about the stories in Sefer Midbar, the story of the Meraglim, stories of complaining for food, this is the uh, history of complaints of Am Yisrael. However, the history of complaining really begins quite earlier. And in Parshat B'Shalach, we actually have three stories of complaints. I'd like to look at these three stories in depth and compare <coughs> the quality of the complaints in Parshat B'Shalach with the complaints in Sefer Bar as well as understand the different reactions that Hashem and Moshe Rabbeinu have to, in response to these complaints. Let's start with the three complaints in Parshat B'Shalach. So the first complaint is immediately after Shirat Hayam. Here the Jews have left Egypt, there's been Makot, there's been the miracle of Kriyat Yamsuf. The Pesukim immediately following the Shirah, we already have complaining. Here we are in Perak Tedvav, Pasuk Chafet, Vayisa Moshet, Yisrael Miyamsuf, Vayitzul Midbar Shur, Vayelchush Loshet Yamin Bamidbar Velomatzumai. So they go for three days and they cannot find water. Vayavo Marata Veloyechlu Vishtotmai Mimara Kimarimheim, they come to a place called Mara. They at first think there's water. Turns out that that water is too bitter to drink. One imagines this would be a cause for greater disappointment. Three days without a source of water. It looks like their problem is solved, and it turns out that this water too cannot be, cannot be utilized. So if the people turn and complain. So they complain to Moshe. Now, in Bamidbar, we're often used to the fact that complaints are greeted with a harsh response. Sometimes Moshe is angry, sometimes Hashem is angry, sometimes there's a punishment, sometimes Moshe turns to Hashem and says, how can I lead these people? Here we have none of the above. What's Moshe's response? No problem. Moshe turns and davens to Hashem. Hashem explains what the solution is. Put the eights in the water. It will sweeten the water of Marah, and we can move on. Right? The response is purely... Solve the problem. No anger and no punishment. Then, a bit later, we have another complaint. In the beginning of Perak Tetzayin, So here we are on the 15th of Iyar, so it's exactly a month after the beginning of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And there's another complaint. Again, this is the same verb of Tluna, to complain. So 
Right? It would have been better to die in Egypt. There we had food, we had meat, we had bread. And here we have no source of food in the Midbar, in the desert. So we, we, before we had a complaint about lack of water. Here we have a complaint about lack of food. And once again, the response does not seem to be that harsh. I should point out that about a month later, it could be that their food supplies from Egypt have run out at this point. Right? This is what Ibn Ezra suggests. They had about a month of foodstuffs with them. Now it's run out. They don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They turn to Moshe. What's the response? It etc. et Right? They'll get the man, and that will be okay. Once again, the complaint is not responded to with any kind of harshness or punishment. The third complaint in Parshat B'Shalach does elicit a bit of criticism, although no punishment. In Perak Yudzai and Pasuk Aleph, now, so in a place called Rafidim, and there's no water, and once again, the people turn and complain to Moshe. Now here the verb shifts. Now here notice two things. We have a verb shift. The verb is no longer tluna. It's vayarev miriva. There's a quarrel that the people have. Secondly, for the first time, Moshe faults the people. Seems to have sound a critical note. Why are you struggling with me, quarreling with me? Why are you testing Hashem? Then the pasuk continues. And here Moshe also, in Moshe's response to Hashem, also seems to sound a more negative note. Right, another second, and they're liable to stone me. Now, again, there's no punishment here. That is a contrast to Sefer Bamidbar that we will have to return to. But here, for the first time, we have a negative note. So to sum up what we have in Parshat Bishalach, before we look at Bamidbar and form a contrast, we have three stories of complaints. The initial complaint in Midbar Shur when they lack water. The second complaint on the 15th of Iyar when they're lacking food, and then they receive the man. There we're told that complaint is Ben Ilam of Sinai. And the third complaint in Rifidim, once again, for a lack of water. Here, for the first time, there is a critical response, but no punishment throughout the entire Parsha. If we turn to Bamidbar, we have stories of complaining. And not just complaining, but very similar complaining. Complaining about lack of water, complaining about lack of food. So let us look at three complaints in Bamidbar. So we'll begin with Bamidbar, Parakit Aleph. And here, we're in Parshat Balotcha. And here the Torah says, very beginning of Perkyot Aleph, the people are mitonanim, which we'll discuss a bit later, the exact etymology of this verb, but some form of complaining. And right away, it's very harsh evaluation of this complaint and response. First of all, it's rab azne Hashem. It is evil in the ear of God. It sounds evil. God is angry. And there's an immediate punishment. Right? Very different reaction to the reaction in Parshat B'Shalach. Uh, this continues to the next story. Right? This p- first story is the place known as Tavera. Then we move on to the story known as Kivrot HaTava. In Pasuk Dalad of Perek Yeralaf, Here again, there's a request for meat. Again, this Bamidbar Yeralaf sounds... Familiar to sounds comparable to Shemot Tedzayin, a request for food. Once again, there's a certain longing for the supply of food in Egypt. 
remember the fish we had in Egypt, free fish. Various foodstuffs that were available in Egypt. Now, of course, it's quite odd to think back to a period of slavery as a time of material bounty. But nonetheless, it may be so that uh, it was easier for them to procure fish there. Right? There are different suggestions what means. The Ibn Ezra suggests that it's a bit of an exaggeration, but fish was at least cheap. Right? Fish was in abundance near the Nile, and therefore it went for a relatively modest price. Other mafarshim, such as the Ramban, truly say it was, it was free. If you want slaves to uh, work a long day and produce, you need to give them food. So Am Yisrael, with all its problems in Egypt, did have access to, to food. They were able to eat easily and survive, and that's what they're remembering now. So again, there's this request for food, there's this panic. Where is our food supply in the desert? Here, once again, the response is much harsher, both in evaluation and in punishment. In Pasuk Yud, we have here the following, Vayicharaf Hashem Ma'od, God is exceedingly angry with them, Uveinei Moshe Ra, and the eyes of Moshe, it's evil, an evaluation that we did not have in Parshat Bishalach. So again, the, height, the contrast becomes heightened. Here, seemingly parallel complaint, a request for food, and here there's anger and there's punishment in a much more immediate sense. Of course, there's also a parallel to the complaint about lack of water. For this, we have to move from Parshat Balatcha to Bamidbar Perkchaf, right, the famous story of the sin of Moshe Rabbeinu that prevents him from coming to Eretz Yisrael. Here also we hear in Perkchaf Pasuk Aleph about a place called Midbar Tzin, they don't have water, and they say again, we want water. Now here, there is no punishment for the people, although the repercussions for Moshe are quite serious. But we again seem to have a story that's rather parallel to what happened in Shemot. Now this dual parallelism in terms of asking for meat and asking for water actually motivated one Mefarish, it's a maverick position, to claim that these are really the same story. In Rav Yosef Bechor Shor, one of the Balya Tosvot, in his commentary, he suggests that uh, these are two sides of the same story, and we hear about certain details in one episode that we did not hear in the other episode. He actually compares it to what we have is, with stories such as the Meraglim. Right? If one looks at the account of the Meraglim in Bamidbar and the account in Sefer Dvarim, one discovers different details that one did not know from the other account. So as the Bechor show would have it, the stories in Shemot, Tedzai and Yudzayin, focus on certain details. The fact that Am Yisrael needed sustenance in the Midbar and Hashem provided. And Bamidbar apparently works more on the negative, focuses more on the complaining aspect of Am Yisrael. Now, I think this is a difficult interpretation to maintain, but I should point out the Bechor Shor's arguments for this interpretation. So in Shemot Tedzayin, when the people complain that they're hungry, so Hashem's response is not only to send the man, but there's a brief mention of something else as well. In Perak Tedzai and Pasig Yud Gimel, Vahiva Erev Atal Haslav Atachaset Machaneh, Vabokar Tashikvat Hatal Saviv Lamachaneh. There's a slav, there's a certain bird that is brought up. Now, of course, when we hear the word slav, we think about the response to the request for food in Balotcha. Says the Bukhashar, the mention of slav in Bishalach is suggestive that these are two sides of the same coin. To mention two of his other examples, he argues that the requests for water. The request for water in Shemot Yudzayin takes place in Midbar Sin. The request for water in Midbar Chav takes place in Midbar Sin. Says the Bechor Shara quite reasonably, maybe there's a, these are really one and the same. Midbar Sin and Midbar Sin are one and the same place. His third suggestion has to do, his third proof really I should say, has to do with the phrase Masa Umriva. That in Shemot Yudzayin, 
when we're hearing about the complaint about the water. We hear at the end of the story, right? It's because Israel quarreled there. Uh, in Dvarim Lamed Gimel, when it's talking about Aaron HaKohen, so we hear, Sounds like somehow Aaron sin, Aaron has some problem based on the story of Masa and Riva. Says the Bukhar well, Aaron's problem dates from Bamid Barchaf. And if Masam Riva is meant to be connected to the same terminology in Shemot Yedzayin, that would indicate that these are the one and the same story. These are the Bukhar various arguments. Now, I think one could offer several arguments against this. First of all, the pal to the Maraglim is debatable. Uh, clearly, the second half of the Maraglim happens in Sefer Dvarim. It's quite obvious that Sefer Dvarim is a recap of previous episodes of the Torah and previous mitzvot with a specific focus on certain I, I, details, right? Certain focus that Sefer Dvarim has. Whereas the same story to other places in the Torah, it's less obvious the Torah would be prone to do that. Right? There would have to be a good reason why the Torah would break up the story into two parts. However, there's a more fundamental problem. In the story in Bamidbar, when they're asking for food, they not only say that we don't have a source of food. They say as follows. Here we are back in Bamidbar Yid Aleph. They say, Bamidbar Yid Aleph, Pasuk Vav, in kol. Right, our souls are uh, parched. We don't have anything. Bilti el haman enenu. All we have to look at is the man. That's the only food stuff that we have to look forward to. This, of course, suggests that they have the money ready for quite a while before they make this complaint, which seems to pretty clearly indicate that the food complaint of Bamidba Yid Aleph is not the identical food complaint of Shemot Zion. Shemot Zion is before they have the man and they're hungry. Bamidba Yid Aleph is already the second year, and they have the man, but they want something else. They want the meat or the free fish of Egypt. And indeed, the different reactions to these two stories, and as we will now proceed to argue, the different nature of the complaints really would seem to argue against the Bukhar Shar, that these are, in fact, two separate stories. Now let's think about what the difference between the two stories are. Two sets of stories, I should say. Now, the most obvious difference, one could, would say, is that there's the beginning of a national career and further in the career. Right after leaving Egypt, we, perhaps we should say, Am Yisrael is allowed to make some rookie mistakes. Right? They're not used to what it means to be religiously responsible. They're not used to functioning with the Ribbon Shalom. It's true that they've witnessed... Uh, Yitziat Mitzrayim, and they witnessed the Makot. But there's still a religious maturity that cannot be found overnight. And perhaps from that perspective, the complaints of that first few months in Shemot, Tedvav through Yitzayin, can be somehow forgiven, can be understandable. When it gets to the second year in Bamidbar, there should be a greater, greater sense of religious seriousness, a greater ability to deal with difficulties, a greater trust in the Ribbon Sholem. Perhaps for that reason, Bamidbar receives a harsher reaction than the complaints of Shemot. But perhaps it's more than that. It's not just a question of the passage of time. Let us look at the three complaints in Shemot more carefully. Shemot Tedvav, as we noticed, begins with a complaint for water. They go three days without water. They finally think they've achieved a source of water. They've arrived, and yet that water is too bitter, and the people complain. Now, one might suggest here that this is a legitimate complaint. They don't know yet what the nature of their existence in the Midbar will be. They don't know what the nature of the divine involvement is. Perhaps uh, at this point it's quite uh, reasonable to complain that they don't have water. And indeed, Moshe's response is simply to Davin, right? And Hashem, the Rebbe Shalom, is not, does not seem upset either. One could say the same argument about the lack of uh, food. Again, Hashem has taken care of them recently, but they don't know exactly how life in the Midbar is going to work. They're not so sure about the future of Jewish existence. And uh, not having food, they get nervous. 
This is a position that is taken explicitly by the Barbanel. The Barbanel on Shmot, the very end of Perak Tadvav, it's page uh, Kuflam and Gimel in the standard editions of Barbanel. <coughs> it says as follows, Hineid ba'er, mizash Yisrael ha'yala makom litlonein, mehalichatam b'midbar. They had a place to complain. It was not out of place. Mifnei shelo ha'yala hem lechem le'achov v'lo basar. Ki kvartam kala meknev ha'lechem sh'otziyom mitzrayim. As the Ibn Ezra argued, a Barbanel holds they finished all their supplies, their foodstuffs from Egypt. And clearly food is a necessity. We're talking about a massive population. We're talking about people worried about feeding their children. Not knowing where the water and food are going to come from, this is a reasonable source for complaint. Therefore, we might suggest that it's not just that they are in their infancy of relationship with the Yibon but the complaint per se is really reasonable. So step one is to say that not every complaint is problematic. So perhaps Shmot Tedvav and Shmot Zion, Moshe and Hashem do not respond with anger because the complaints are really quite reasonable. However, we noted that the third complaint of B'Shalach in Perak Yedzayin already seems to uh, shift ground a bit. Not that there's any punishment that emerges. Amisol seems to be emerged unscathed. Nevertheless, Moshe seemed to be a bit harsher. Right? First, towards the people, then in Moshe's conversation with Hashem, seems to be a growing frustration with the people. Now here, several Mepharshim say, if you read the Pesukim very carefully, there's a sense that something different happened. First of all, we might note that the verb changed. The verb for what the Am Yisrael did in Tedvav and Tetzayin was just Vayilonu, just a Tluna. In Shemot Yudzayin Bet, we have a new verb form, Vayarev HaMemoshe. Vayarev is uh, more serious, it's deeper. It's not just a complaint, it's a quarrel. Perhaps something else is going on. Am Yisrael is not just complaining because they don't have water. There's a certain quarrelsome quality to the Am Yisrael that is coming to the fore here. There might be several other clues to this idea. The first time we hear that they're thirsty is in Pasuk Gimel. Now, one could say that we only hear about in Gimel, but obviously they're thirsty, they ask for water. Then it seems suggests that the thirst really only showed up later, that the people are complaining about their dearth of water before they're actually thirsty. Again, perhaps suggestive of the fact that there's some kind of deeper, more problematic complaint going on here. Finally, the Ibn Ezra makes an inference from the phrase Vayarav Ha'am. And I believe he's working off a contrast between Pasuk Aleph and Pasuk Bet of Perak Yudzayin. Perak Yudzayin begins with Vayasu Kal Adap Yisrael. They're all traveling from Midbar Sin. Pasuk Bet is Vayarav Ha'am in Moshe. Ibn Ezra points out what happened to Kal Ha'am. The Ibn Ezra suggests that this means that there's more than one group within the population. And according to the Ibn Ezra, there's basically a division. There are those who are genuinely thirsty, genuinely concerned for how Am Yisrael is going to survive in the Midbar. And they perhaps can be forgiven, just as we saw in Tedvav and Tedzayim. But suggest the Ibn Ezra, there was another group who was really interested in the quarrel per se. They were interested in the Meriva. The shift of the verb, the lack of the call, indicates a certain problematic group interested in complaining. And perhaps we have our first important split. We'll see another model in a second. But a split between those cases where one complains because one has a legitimate gripe, one has something truly to be worried about, and those who just like to complain. Perhaps to think of analogy to this, I had mentioned... Many people who go to, not many people, some people in a shul, they're happy to go to shul every day. Well, they're not so excited, though, about the davening and the rabbi's speech. But if there's any fight in the shul, any argument, then they're all excited. Right? They're looking for a little action. The complaining and the argumentation becomes an end of it in itself. And this, of course, is something much more religiously problematic than a mere request for water. And perhaps that would explain the greater anger, the greater frustration of Moshe Rabbeinu to the request in Paragidzayim. Here already, there's a sense of complaint for the sake of complaining, a desire to be difficult, a desire to stir up a bit of action. 
So perhaps that might help explain the transitions from Shemot Tedvav Tedzayin on the one hand to Shemot Yudzayin on the other hand. Now, perhaps this split could also help us understand what's going on in Sefer Bamidbar. And I'd like to suggest that there's a third model at work there as well. If we go back to Sefer Bamidbar, Yud Aleph, we saw the first complaint that was rather ambiguous. Right? The first complaint was, And we don't ever hear what the complaint is. We just know that it's evil in the, according to Hashem. Now, what is the etymology of the word mitonanim? Here, there is a three-way debate among the Mepharshim. The Ibn Ezra says that the Aleph of Nun here relates to sin. Quotes a Pasuk in Yemiyahu where it says, where it means sin. But here, Am Kemitonim means the people were sinning. Now here, of course, one might wonder, well, what was the sin? And why would the Torah keep quiet about it? So the Ramban points this out. He says, if it's just a sin, it's unusual for the Torah to say the people sinned in a very general and broad fashion. The Torah should tell us what the sin is. So the Ramban suggests that the Ibn Ezra is incorrect and that the root Aleph of Nun is actually from the word to complain. He cites a Pasuk in Eicha, there, Aleph of Nun is to complain, although one might note that even here, the complaint is still not explicated. What is the complaint? We don't know. We have a mysterious complaint. There's a third approach of Rashi. Rashi has a different Aleph of Nun form. He relates it to a Pasuk in Shoftim. There, after Shimshon has become interested in Plishti woman, the Pasuk says, Ki shemhi, this is really from God, Ki plishtim. Now there, perhaps, the best translation of Toana, the Aleph of Nun, there would be a pretext, a stratagem. At which point, Vahiyam Kemit Onanim would mean the people are looking for a pretext. Now it seems fairly clear, both according to Ramban and Rashi, that Bamidbar Yid Aleph might reflect what we found in Shemot Yid Zayin. Vahiyam Kemit Onanim. According to Ramban, they're complaining. What are they complaining about? We don't hear. Perhaps, once again, this indicates that the complaint has become the end in and of itself. There's a desire to complain, a desire to stir up some controversy. According to Rashi, of course this is the case. Mit onanim, they are searching for a pretext. They're looking for a way to challenge the Rebona Shalom or perhaps to challenge Moshe Rabbeinu. That's what's happening here. One might add, I believe the Sfarna says this, that that's also the kimit onanim, right? That kafadimayon, it's like they're complaining. It's almost an act. There's a, not a real sense of discomfort, right? The reality is that they're doing quite well, but there's this desire to portray oneself as in trouble too, Again, stir up a little action to complain. So again, this restores us to the model of Shemot Yudzayin. Perhaps the beginning of Mimur Yud Aleph is the same thing, a complaint for the sake of complaining. However, now let's move to a third model, the second story in Mimur Yud Aleph. Here we hear about the Asaf Suf wanting meat, right? They're upset there's no meat. And we pointed out that they say, what about the free fish we had in Egypt? And again, we pointed out the oddity. We tend to not think of Egypt as a material paradise. It is kind of funny that that's how Am Yisrael is thinking about it. And we pointed out a different Mepharshim deal with the word chinam. As the Ibn Ezra says, it's just cheap, not really free. The Ramban suggests it was actually free, that the Egyptian uh, taskmasters did at least supply food to the slaves. Rashi here has a third comment, quoting Chazal. And Nechama Libowitz is very adamant that uh, she often is, that Rashi is actually the Peshat here. But here I think uh, Necham is really onto something. Rashi says, What does chinam mean? Chinam in ha-mitzvot. Free of mitzvot. For Rashi, the complaint here is quite different. It is not a legitimate complaint, nor is it even a complaint for the sake of complaining. Rather, it's a complaint about something very specific, but something one is embarrassed to complain about, and one finds another way to voice one's displeasure. Again, we have to think of Am Yisrael in Mitzrayim. It's true that they're slaves. It's true that the life is pretty bad. 
but they do not live a life of grand religious and ethical responsibility. They have not yet heard of the bulk of Torah and mitzvot, right? A slave in general is often uh, not made, not great moral demand, demands are not made of the slave. And that's what Am Yisrael is used to. Now, this is post-Matan Torah, right? They've heard about a whole host of mitzvot. And one imagine there might be a certain discomfort, a certain rebellious quality from these mitzvot. And according to Rashi, it's almost, it's almost Freudian here, in which they're talking about freedom, about things being free, and perhaps what they're saying is free fish, but they're really thinking about personal freedom. They're thinking about a life devoid of responsibility, a life devoid of moral commands. And this is something that there's a certain attraction to. And perhaps now we can suggest that there's really three models. There's a model of complaining when it's legitimate, Shmoted Vav and Shmoted Zayin. Then we move to the second model of complaining for the sake of complaining, Shmot Yud Zayin and Bamibri Yud Aleph. Perhaps now we have a third model, a model of complaining when one does have something to complain about, but it's a problematic source of complaint. One would like to be free of rules and regulations. And one, cleverly or not so cleverly, expresses that complaint about some other pretext. And here this might indi- be indi- indicated in a few other things in the, in the psukim here. Notice the shift of complaints. Right? First they say, basar. Then they say, They shift from meat to fish. Now again, one could say they're just listing various food items. But I would suggest when you're just looking for a pretext, you're not so consistent. The point is, you really want to complain about the mitzvot, about the fact that you're restricted this way. So a whole host of things stumble at, fall out of your mouth without any coherent reason. There's basar, there's dagea, there's mitzalim, whatever it is. They're just upset. This also might be reflected in a later verse. Uh, later in Pasag Yudah, Bamidra Yudalaf, we hear, Moshe, Moshe hears that the people are crying according to their families. And that's the Pasag that ends with, Now here, is kind of a surprising phrase. Right? They, we hear them crying. Why is it important to know that they cry according to family units? they cried in another way, would that be different? Would it be a different kind of crying? So here one could say several things. One could say that the crying according to family units indicates some kind of public ritual of crying. It wasn't just isolated individuals here or there. Perhaps it was some kind of mass movement. Rashi, once again, citing Chazal, says that no, something deeper is going on. Rashi says, Al iske There's a sense of tension because of the laws of Arayot, the laws of family purity, the laws of sexual modesty, these are something that, again, Am Yisrael, as slaves in Egypt, might not have been used to the Torah's guidelines. Now there's a certain amount of difficulty in accepting them. And again, if one reads deeper here, or one reads more deeply, one discovers that, indeed, the complaint is really about restrictions. And several commentaries, super commentaries on Rashi, advance this idea. There's a commentary by the Be'er HaTorah, where he suggests that uh, the Basar is really a different kind of Basar. Right? That they say Basar, but they're thinking about broader physical hedonism, relating back to Bochel and Mishpachotav. Now, I realize, according to the Be'er Torah's commentary, it's talking more specifically about sexual matters, but I think there's no reason to limit it that way. I think Rashi's insight could be broader, right? The Am Yisrael is frustrated by the restrictions in many respects, by obligations as well, and that's the complaint that is coming forth. And one might argue that this is, in fact, the worst of the three models, that the second model, there's certainly something religiously problematic about it, the desire for complaining for the sake of complaining, but when, when the complaint is even more deeper, in a sense, when one is upset with being restricted at all, then one is really not ready for religious life. Then one is basically saying that, this is not for me. I am not a person for obligations, for leading a moral religious lifestyle. And notice the shift. 
when Bamibri and Aleph, after the minute of Onanim, it said, Vaychar Apo, Hashem is angry. Here we have Vaychar Af Hashem Od, the additional word. God is very angry. He's exceedingly upset. And the other addition, Uveinei Moshe Ra. This is evil in the eyes of Moshe Rabbeinu. I would suggest that this reflects the shift from the second model to the third model. This kind of complaining, there's truly no place for. And God is extremely angry. Moshe sees it as evil. This is something that really cannot be, uh, cannot be accepted. Uh, it occurred to me when I was thinking about, about these three models that uh, I'm a, obviously I'm a teacher in the yeshiva, and this is something that I think we often deal with. Right? When our students come with various complaints, or perhaps even not teachers, anyone deals with it, any parent who's dealing with complaints. So sometimes I think we have to make this kind of threefold distinction. Uh, sometimes there's a temptation to ignore all complaints, right? To view, uh, as a teacher, it's an unfortunate temptation to see every single complaint as the weakness of the students, as the laziness of the students. Uh, if they were truly strong-willed, they would overcome it. It behooves us to realize some complaints are legitimate. I would argue that's what's being conveyed in Shemot Tedvav and Shemot Zion, that the lack of anger on the behalf of Moshe Rabbeinu and from the Rebbeinu Shalom is trying to tell us something. Some complaints are indeed legitimate. Am Yisrael can't find a source of water, they're just new to the Midbar. Am Yisrael does not know where their food is going to come from. One can complain. Not every complaint should be viewed with suspicion. Not every complaint should be responded to with anger. That's Shemot Tevav and Then, of course, sometimes we have to admit that people just want to complain. This, of course, is problematic. This is Shemot Yud Zion and Bamidbar Yud Aleph, the Mitonanim. However, the worst of the three, of course, is the last model. And here, unfortunately, when this happens, this, I think, calls for a harsher hand from, on behalf of the, those representing the authority of the institution. When it turns out that those complaining are indeed not just complaining because they're truly lacking something, not just complaining because they want to complain, but they really do not like to be told what to do in any sense. Right? There's a desire for freedom, almost this childish yearning for a life devoid of responsibility. And of course, again, one still needs to understand where this comes from. But this calls for the harshest hand of the three. And indeed, So perhaps uh, the various complaints of Shemot, Tedvav, through Yudzayin really are uh, an important addition to our thinking of Amisol's history. As I started out, we tend to think of Amisol's complaining as really a story of Sefer Bamidbar. But as Bashalach makes quite clear, that this is something that begins from the dawn of the trek of Amisol through the Midbar. And the three models of complaining we've looked at certainly help us get to a richer understanding of the Torah and a richer understanding of how to respond to complaining in general. You have been listening to Pashat HaShavua from Rav Yitzchak Blau. And now for today's Halacha Yomit, we mentioned in yesterday's Halacha Yomit that there was a halachic problem concerning answering Amen after the Bracha of HaBocher Bamo Yisra Ba'ava or Oher Bamo Yisrael, the Bracha that immediately precedes Kriyat Shema. And therefore, the Beit Yosef recommends finishing the Bracha together with the Chazan so that the question of answering Amen does not arise. That's not a widespread custom. A more well-known version of the same problem consists of the last Bracha after Kriyat Shema, Bechat Ga'el Yisrael, it's the third Bracha of Bechat Kriyat Shema, which immediately precedes Shema Nesrei. And there, there is an explicit Halacha in the Gemara, that one should be somech geula litfila. One should put together geula, the kat ga'al Yisrael, and tfila, and shmon And the Post will understand this as a relatively 
again, high level of, of hefsek. One should avoid any hefsek whatsoever between geula v'tfila. And then the question arose, can one answer amen to the chazan's bracha? The considerations are similar to what I described yesterday. The content of this amen, what does this amen mean? If the chazan says ga'al Yisrael and I say amen, I'm saying me too, I agree. So the content of my amen is geula. And that's why some argue that it's not a hefsek. You're not talking about something else. You're not talking about the stock market. You're talking about geula. On the other hand, it's, it's not what it says in the Siddur. It's not part of the bracha itself. It's an addition. And the bracha of Ga'al Yisrael was when you said the bracha, Baruch Atah Hashem, Ga'al Yisrael. And so therefore there's a dispute among the poskim whether or not it's permitted to say Amen after Bekat Ga'al Yisrael or whether that would consist of, that would constitute a hefsek between Geula and Tefillah. In order to avoid this dispute, so it's recommended to do something that will free you from the obligation to say Amen. The Mishnah Bura, when discussing this, has three suggestions. One suggestion is the one I mentioned yesterday, that you should finish Ga'al Yisrael together with the Chazan. If you finish at the same time, since one is not permitted to answer Amen to one's own Bacha, so most poets can say you could not answer Amen even to another Bacha at the same time. Because you also finished your bracha, then you cannot say amen at the end of your own bracha. That's the Mishra's first suggestion. The second suggestion is you should start Shema Esrei a little bit early. The Chazan will still be saying Ga'al Yisrael, and you already have started Shema Esrei. During Shema Esrei, everyone agrees you're not allowed to be mafsik. You can't, you can't answer to anything. Therefore, you will not have to answer amen to the Ga'al Yisrael of the Chazan. His third suggestion is that you should lag behind the Chazan. If you're in the middle of the Bacha of Ga'a Yisrael, means some place before the actual saying, Baruch Atah Hashem. So also, you cannot answer Amen because you're in the middle of a section and, and, and you should not be mafsik that particular Bacha. Interestingly enough, he doesn't mention the idea which is most commonly done today. In most shuls that I've been in, it has become a custom of the Chazin not saying Ga'a Yisrael, saying it under his breath, saying it quietly, Therefore, nobody hears it, nobody has to answer Amen. Mishnah Bura was written a little bit over 100 years ago. If he doesn't mention this possibility, it's because he never heard of it. And yet that today is the possibility practiced in most shuls. In fact, somewhat really incongruously, I've been in shuls where in Mayriv, where we don't say Ga'aiso right before Shemana Esrei, there's Hashkiveinu, followed by Kaddish, I've heard people when they finish Kaddish, the Chazim finishes Kaddish, he says, Be'imu Amen. He doesn't say Be'imu Amen out loud, which makes no sense at all. There's no problem in being mafsik between Kaddish and Shemaneser in the country. He said, Be'imu Amen, you're supposed to say Amen. But without knowing the reason, people have gotten into this habit of sliding into Shemaneser very, very quietly. Why doesn't Mishnah mention this possibility? It's, it's apparent from the fact that he doesn't mention it that it's incorrect. The minig is no more than 60, 70 years old. No one knows when it started. Apparently it started in Yeshivot and it took the Jewish world by storm. But many poskim have pointed out that it's incorrect. That the Chazan has to say the Berchot of Kriyat Shema out loud. The original Takana, Kriyat Shema, has a din of Tzibur. Like Shema Nesrei. We say Kriyat Shema B'Tzibur. Tzibur. begins his discussion of Tzibur B'Tzibur. He says, what is Tefillah B'Tzibur? The Chazan says, Baruch and then he says, Kriyat Shema out loud, and the people listen, all they can say with him. So some Poskim felt, Rav Henkin, for instance, said, it's a Takana. 
the Chazal said that the Chazan should say the Pachot out loud. It's true that when he said it, the people could be Yotze, people who do not know the Tefilot on their own. They couldn't say it by heart or they couldn't say it at all. The Chazan would be Motzi them. But even today, when you say it yourselves, because you do know how to daven, but there's still a Takana. The Rav said it in a more extreme version. The Rav said that the Din of Tzibur, this is its form. What does it mean, Tefilah B'Tzibur? It's not just davening together. The form of Tefilah B'Tzibur is that one person davens to everybody. And even though they can also say it themselves, which is even better because why rely on someone else when you're going to say it yourself, but the tzibur aspect requires it to be this, this, this framework of one person saying it out loud, everybody else uh, uh, listening to what he's saying, and, and also saying it themselves. And therefore, the chazan has to say the bachot out loud, or else we lose the tzibur aspect, the tzibur framework of, of bachot kriyachma. Now, today... In, in some more traditional, older Svaudi uh, shuls, the Chazan says the entire Birkot Kriyat Shema out loud. From, from Baruch Hu till, till Ga'al Yisrael. Ashkenazim don't do that, and, and many other shuls don't do that. But with Henkin claimed, you still have to do it correctly, and therefore you can do the minimum. The minimum of a Bacha, in order to be Yotzei, is Samuch Lachatima Me'en Chatima, En Chatima, a line or two right before the end of the bracha, which sums up the, the topic, and then the bracha itself. That would mean, that's why Chazanim always do that. They say a little bit, and they say a bracha. You say, uh, That's the minimum amount that a person could say to be Yotzei this bracha, and therefore the Chazan, today we still do the minimum, at least the minimum. But he has to do at least that. That means in the, the last bacha, he should say, Go alayhi, Hashem tzvakot, Kedoshim al, Baruch Hashem, Ga'al Yisrael. And therefore the Rav, Moshe Feinstein, Rav Henkin, they all pass him that you, the Chazan must say it out loud. And therefore the way to avoid the problem is to go back to the suggestions that the Mishnah mentioned. The best one there is to say it together with the Chazan. Starting from Yisrael early, might be a problem, we should start together. Uh, the best thing to do is really to say, Ga'al Yisrael, the Chazan says it out loud, and everybody else says it out loud at exactly the same time. They finish together. You then cannot answer Amen. You've avoided the problem of whether one should answer Amen or should not answer Amen. And one starts from an essay immediately, B'smichut Gu'ulat combining and connecting together Gu'ulat Yisrael and Tefillah Le'eloke Yisrael. That's it for today. Tomorrow we'll be back with the Erev Shabbat program for Pashat B'Shalach. Until then, this is Ezra Bek wishing you a good day. Kol Tov from Gush Etzion. You've been listening to KMTT. Ki Mitzion Tetzei Torah Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim.